Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 239 of the Bible in one year. So just a reminder of what you should have read to be prepared for this discussion. You should have read Job chapters 23-27. You should have read 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 12 through chapter 2 verse 11. Psalm 41 1-13 through and Proverbs 22 verses 5 and 6. So we're going to be in Acts 25 starting in verse 13 going through verse 22 for today. So just a reminder where we left off so we can, there is now a new Roman governor for the province of Judea and his name is Porcius Festus, right? So we saw that as we came to the end of chapter 24, right? And then what we saw in the first section of the first 12 verses of chapter 25 is we saw Festus hear Paul's case and then ask Paul for a change of venue from the provincial capital of Caesarea to the city of Jerusalem. So that took us up through uh, chapter 25 uh, verse 9. So then what we then saw in those last three, or excuse me, last four, yes, last three verses of chapter 25 as we saw Paul refuse this request with his own request, with his own demand that was keeping to, that was in keeping with his rights as a Roman citizen because we see Paul request to have his case heard before the Roman Emperor himself. And so what we're gonna see today is we're gonna see Festus consulting with the current Jewish king, a man by the name of Agrippa, or more precisely Herod Agrippa the second, right? So he's gonna consult with this man about Paul and his case. So now we're going to pick up now in verse 13. So we're going to read these entire section. And then we're going to look at what we see in this passage. So starting in verse 13, here's what it says. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king and said there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. 
I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. Ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. And was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the Emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. And Agrippa sent to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, Tomorrow you will hear him. So now that we've read this passage, we're going to be focusing, we're going to be zeroing in on five areas, five things in this passage. So we're going to be looking at King Agrippa, that's the first thing. We're going to be looking at his sister Bernice, which is the second we're going to be looking at Festus' consulting with King Agrippa, that's the third thing. We're going to look at the opportunity afforded to all Roman citizens to defend themselves against charges or to defend themselves against their accusers, is the more precise way to put it, so that's the fourth thing. The fifth and final thing we're going to look at is the fact that this dispute was over religious matters, which is the key, the crux of what we're seeing here now. So let's go with the first thing we're going to look at. we got to look at King Agrippa, right? Right? So, let me see the verse 13. So a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in... Uh, arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Fisk. So, who was this uh, Agrippa that, that is being referred to here, right? So, this Agrippa is Agrippa the second, who was the son of Herod Agrippa the first. So, in other words, he was Herod Agrippa the second, the son of Herod Agrippa the first, right? And so, because of Agrippa's youth, he only wrote over a small area, but he spoke on behalf of his people. He spoke on behalf of the Jewish people, and he supported Rome. So what we're saying here is that he was strongly opposed to the Judean revolt. And he officially celebrated Rome's victory many years afterward. In other words, the revolt that we're going to see happen several years after this, in about AD 70, that would cause the temple to be destroyed 
permanently mean we're gonna see I mean, what we're being told here. What we need to understand is that Agrippa did not support this revolt. Agrippa was very pro-Roman. That's what we need to understand here. He celebrated Roman's victory. And we also know that Agrippa welcomed him. He often visited Roman officials. So now we understand Agrippa. Let's move on to the second thing that we need to gain a little bit of understanding on here. It is this other name we see here in verse 13, right? Which is Bernice, right? So we're told that a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. So we already know who Festus is. We already know who Agrippa is. Now it's time to get to know this person that's named here by the name of Bernice. So this name in its fuller form, or in its fullest form, was Bernice. And so this person, this woman, right, because that would be a female name, was Agrippa's sister, who was one year younger than he, right? So when Herod Agrippa the first died, Herod Agrippa the second was seventeen, and his younger and his next youngest sibling, Bernice, was sixteen, right? So the youngest sibling in this group is a woman by the name of Drusilla, who was six, right? So we know who this Drusilla is because we know that <coughs> this man was, uh, this was, this Drusilla was the wife of Felix that we were told earlier, that, right, the, the Roman governor prior to Festus, right? So we think this family has some very close connections to Rome. And Bernice, like Agrippa, appears favorably in the Jewish historian Josephus's writings, who was also Roman approved. That's why he appeared favorably, right? So we know that Bernice was close to her brother, and that she stayed with him after the collapse of her marriage. That would be why she went with him to appear before, or to appear before Festus, or to come and pay their respects to Festus. So, Agrippa has kind of taken Bernice in as a ward, as a way to look after her. And there are occasional accusations of incest between these two, between this brother and sister, that is largely to be believed and is almost certainly a slander, right? So there's one other interesting thing that we need to know about this character burnings that we see mentioned here that although she is 15 years older than the future emperor titus who would be the one who would lead the conquering arm conquering roman armies in to jerusalem with the collapse of jerusalem and the final destruction of the temple in about 80 70 right even though 
Bernice is 15 years older than this man, she would become his mistress while he was besieging Rome. Or excuse me, besieging Jerusalem. Excuse me, besieging Jerusalem. So in other words, we see that of these three children of Herod Agrippa I, one of them, Herod Agrippa II, becomes a king and becomes friends and acquaintances and becomes friendly. So we see that all three of Herod Agrippa I's children are highly sympathetic to Rome. They were Romanized. They were Jewish, yes, but they were Romanized to the point they had almost completely lost their sense of Jewishness, their sense of that they were different from these Romans. So the key to all of this, right, is that Agrippa and Bernice were both alive when Luke and Josephus writing their accounts. So these people would have been first-hand eyewitnesses to what is going on here. So moving on now. So we've covered those, the first two which came in the first verse, verse 13. So now we're going to move into this second verse which says this which is verse 14. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. Hmm. So Festus discussed Paul's case, right? So what's so important there? Why do we need to talk about that, right? Why would Festus need to discuss Paul's case? with the man who was clearly his subordinate. So, here's, here's why. Here's why I pay very close attention to this, right? Agrippa the second, here to Agrippa the second, could de- depose and appoint high priests. So, if Festus was to be, was armed with advice from him, from Agrippa, he would not need to worry about the opinion of the priestly aristocrats he already has the backing of the man who has control over them understand where we're going with this right so Agrippa's discussing this case with the man who can ultimately be the one who can tell the high priest to sit down and shut up he can say Yes, what you're saying is absolutely true, and this man needs to die, right? So, in other words, Festus is giving all of this information. He's discussing this with uh, Agrippa because Paul's been Paul has demanded, as is his right, to be sent to Rome, and Festus could not send Paul to Rome without some sort of informed advice for this dossier that Festus has to build for Paul. (coughs) So let's keep going. So here's what the rest of verse 14, 15, and 16 have has to say, right? 
So here's what it says in the second half of verse 14. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. Now verse 16. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. So what's the key there to that section, right? The key is in verse 16, right? Which is the phrase, an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. And more importantly, it is not the Roman custom to hand anyone over before they had faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges, right? So what was going on here, right? So why is that so key, right? So what Festus is saying is that under Roman law, just as under Jewish law, right, defendants had to be granted a public hearing and have the chance to defend themselves. They had the right to face their accusers, right? So all the way up in verse 15, right? So what does it say? When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. So that makes it sound, and the evidence backs this up, right? Backs up what Festus is saying, because they, they wanted Paul condemned without a hearing without a trial, right? No need to have him air the charges out. We've been witness we 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 are witnesses to what he has said. So we don't need to have a hearing. We don't need to have a trial. We just need to get rid of this troublemaker so that everything can go back to normal and once everything has gone back to normal, then, then we can return back to the protections that we are granted under Roman law. So in other words, they wanted to sidestep these protections in order to protect themselves and to protect their own feelings, right? So it wasn't just the sound Festus is trying to make it sound like this is what is happening. This is actually what is happening. They wanted to sidestep the very protections that were enthroned in the Old Testament and Jewish law. They wanted to sidestep the protections that had been in, enthroned and made possible under Roman law simply because they wanted to get rid of this dude and they wanted to do it quickly. So now let's pick up now in verse 17. So we're going to take this all the way through the end. So when they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. And his accusers got up to speak. They did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some 
points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters so I asked if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. And Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. So the key in that section is in verse 19 with the words had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul, whom Paul claimed was alive. Right. So Festus is basically putting this all down, right? Rome was not interested in settling local religious disputes. Rome didn't care about local religious disputes. Rome didn't care about that, right? So long as it did not affect the day-to-day operation of the Roman Empire, they didn't care, right? But, however, however, if these petty provincial matters such as local religious disputes affected the way the empire was run and the way the empire was managed then Rome would have no choice but to step in and settle the matter which is what we see happening here right so Festus realizes that this is a petty squabble that has nothing to do with Rome that Rome should not be involved with at all and he's basically telling these people hey look we don't want nothing to do with this back off it's not a matter for us to be handling so just settle it yourselves but they don't want to hear that they want to cause a riot they want to be riotous and so now all of a sudden Festus has to step in and he wants to basically move venues to where it's going to be skewed against Paul and Paul refused and Paul asked to be tried before to have his case heard by the Roman Empire he's going to be the Roman Emperor so in conclusion what we have seen in this passage right we've seen that Herod Agrippa II, who was the son of Herod Agrippa I that we saw over in Acts chapter 12, was the current Jewish king who was subordinate to Rome. I see that Paul's witness to him would fulfill Jesus' prediction in, in Acts uh, chapter 9 verse 15 that we saw. You know, Jesus told Paul that he would preach in the gospel before kings. That's what we're going to see when we get in this tomorrow. And so that Bernice was Agrippa's younger sister. And that the visit to Festus was like a perfunctory state visit. Given Festus's recent appointment. So in other words, because Festus was the newly appointed governor. 
Hilda Griffith II and his sister Brunings were obligated to go and visit him. He also saw that it gave Festus the opportunity for political cover and to ingratiate himself to Agrippa, right? So he's so he's got this chance now to politically cover his backside and he's got the chance to ingratiate himself to this man who's essentially gonna be charged with day-to-day operations of running the province of Judea. Right, because the Roman governor is not going to be all that involved getting involved in these things. He's going to be in Caesarea. No Jewish person is going to willingly go and visit Caesarea unless they absolutely have to. They're going to stay in places like Jerusalem. They're going to stay in places like uh, Galilee or other parts that have not been polluted in their eyes by the Romans. And so that's what we're going to pick up tomorrow as we see Paul before the last Judean official before he is sent to Rome. And in order for you to be prepared for that discussion, you need to read Job chapters 28 through 30, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, Psalm 42, 1 through 11, and Proverbs 22, 7. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 240 of Through the Bible in One Year. So just a brief reminder of what you should have read to have been prepared for this discussion. You should have read Job chapters 28 through 30, Second Corinthians chapter 2 verses 12 through 17, Psalm 42, 1 through 11, and Proverbs 22 verse 7. So we're going to in Acts 25, particularly Acts 25, verse 23, we're going to go all the way over to Acts chapter 26, verse 23, for this day's passage. So what we have seen so far is we have seen Paul before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish High Council. We have seen Paul brought before two Roman governors. And we, what we must remember about Paul being brought before two Roman governors is, is that this all happened while Paul was being held illegally in the custody of the Roman government of the province of Judea. And so now what we're going to see today is we're going to see Paul brought before the last local official before he is sent on to Rome to have his case heard by Caesar himself. So now we're going to pick up in Acts 25, verse 23, which says this, The next day Agrippa and Bernice 
came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. The commander Festus Paul was brought in. Festus sent King Agrippa and all who are present with us. You see this man, the whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa. So that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner onto Rome without excuse me, without specifying the charges against him. So we see that this was an informal hearing, right? As you see, it says in verse 23, the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room of the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus. Excuse me, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, right? So we see this was an informal hearing. How do we know that? Because the audience room was not the official place of justice. This was not the official place where justice was conducted. That would have been the office of the procurator. This didn't this didn't take place in the office of the procurator. And it took place in the audience, or in the audience hall, right? So we're told then, in verse 23, who this audience included. So this audience included a number of military officers, and we know that at least five such people were stationed in Caesarea. And it included the city's elite also, because right? it says with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city, right? So we see then that Festus gives this command to have Paul brought in. And what happens, right? So what we see happen is what? So we, so we now, so now we're going to move into verse 24. Which is, after Festus has given this command that Paul be brought in, here's what he said. King Agrippa and all who are present with us, all who are present with us, you see this man, the whole Jewish community, has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, 
shouting that he ought not to live any longer. Hmm. So, what do we see in this one little verse? Right, it says so. Festus has this to say, right? So he goes on to say, King Agrippa and everyone who's here with you, right? You see this man? You see this person? You see this man that I brought before you, right? Every one of y'all, every one, every person in y'all's community wants him dead, right? Because they've been petitioning me. They've been making requests to me. They've been making demands of me. And they've been shouting while they've been making these demands of me. That this person ought not to live any longer. That this person ought to be executed. This person ought to die. So, what's, what's so important about that, right? So, he's making an exaggeration. He's exaggerating here to make a point to Agrippa. Look, I had to do this because it's created such an uproar that it was disrupting things and disrupting things within the Roman Empire was not good for the one who did the disrupting and for the person who was actually in charge. Right. So then we go on in verse 25 to see where it says this. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. So what's going on there, right? So in that verse, Festus is giving his own findings on this case. He's telling Agrippa and everyone who has come with him to see Paul, to hear Paul, to be a part of this, that hey, I've found that this man has done absolutely positively nothing wrong. Or at the very least, he's not done anything deserving of the death penalty, which is what the Jewish people were demanding for him. The Jewish people wanted him to be put to death, right? So that takes us up to verse 25. So here's what it says in verse 26. But I have nothing definitive, excuse me, I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner onto Rome without specifying the charges against him. Right? So Festus has already presented his findings on the case. Hey, Paul's done nothing deserving of the death penalty. 
Paul has asked to be sent to Rome, so now I've got to send him to Rome, which is what we see here, right? And so the whole reason we're holding this hearing there is the same reason, Agrippa, that I consulted with you the day before, right? I consulted with you the day before because I need information to send to Rome so that I don't look like a big dummy when Paul arrives in Rome. So that takes us to the end of verse, uh, excuse me, of chapter 25. Now we're going to pick up in 26 verse 1, which says this. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So let's stop right there. So Agrippa is telling him, hey Paul, you got permission to speak for yourself. Go ahead and talk, boy. And I'm sure at this point in time, Paul is probably thinking, even though he don't say it, I don't need your permission to talk because I answer to one who is of higher authority than you and that be the Holy Spirit and if the Holy Spirit tells me to talk ain't nothing you can do that can stop me from talking but it's not what Paul but not what we're told that Paul does even though I'm sure that is exactly what is going through Paul's mind it would go through our minds if we were standing before somebody who had their arrogance to tell us go ahead and speak boy I don't give you my permission to speak well we would uh, it wouldn't go over well with us maybe thinking something but we may not say it when Paul was probably thinking this because Paul was a was a trained lawyer he was a highly trained where he was highly trained in Jewish law, he was highly trained in lots and lots of things. He knew how to speak, he knew how to talk, and he knew he didn't need Agrippa's permission to speak, but he went along with it. So picking up that second part of verse 2, which says, So Paul motioned with his hand, So Paul motioned with his hand began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate. Fortunate. Hmm, fortunate. Consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Patiently. So what we're seeing here, what we're seeing here in, the, in this first little section is we're seeing the beginning of Paul's defense, which was Christianity, this brand spanking new religion that's not only just years old. We're not talking about decades now. We're hundreds of years or thousands of years as it's been around and now. We're talking about something that is brand spanking new. So this is Christianity's first presentation to 
to the um in the Greco-Roman society, right? So what 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 do we mean by that, right? So how was this presented to an elite people within the Greco-Roman society, right? We know well, I'm sure you're probably wondering why is that the case? Well, that's the case because even though Greco was uh was Jewish, he'd been thoroughly Romanized. He had forgotten everything that he'd been taught. He forgotten what it meant to be part of the people of God, which was how Israel saw themselves during that time, which is how the Jewish people saw themselves during that time. He had made himself so Roman, that he was more Roman than he was Jewish, and the people around him would have been more Roman than they were Jewish, and would have been just testing the day of Alexander, they'd have been more Greek than they were Jewish, right? And so what do we see? We see when, when Agrippa gives him permission to speak with Paul did. Paul don't open his mouth and stop making those sarcastic comments. Even though that would have been, that would have been what Paul so wanted it to. Paul would have so wanted at this point in time fire off some sort of, some some sort of sarcastic comment. And once he made that sort excuse me, after he made this sarcastic comment, it would have ended badly. Right. So we'll see that when when a group gave Paul permission to sleep. We said, we're told that he motioned with his hand, in other words. He, he got up and he said, okay, 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 I'm, I'm standing up, I'm gonna talk. Y'all need to sit down and, and listen whether or not that was a, a raised hand. We don't know. We're just told, hey, he motioned with his hand, in other words, saying, hey, hey, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. So I may have told him, hey, hey, sit down, sit down, sit down. I got some things to tell y'all. That y'all gonna need to sit down for. That it ain't gonna do no good if y'all standing up and waiting to see something that may or may not be there. <sighs> Let me tell you, sit down. I got some stuff to tell you. Y'all need to sit down and listen to what I got to tell you. Right. So what, what, what does that mean? Why is that so important? Did you see Paul was following? He was following the conventions of that day in both words and actions in order to make the best presentation possible. Or to make that, to make the best presentation Possible. So Paul knows that these people need it. He knows what's gonna happen if they don't accept it. So he makes the best presentation possible. So in other words, so that 
here with Agrippa. Uh, so that Festus hears this and has an opportunity now to make that choice for them, for his or her self. So now we're going to pick up over in verse 4, which says this, The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. Since I was a child. From the beginning of my life, in my own accounts, bring the, the Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem they have kn they have known me for a long time and can testify can testify if they are willing that I can f conform to the strictest sect of our religion in other words Paul saying point blank again I was a Pharisee I was a Pharisee, I, I conformed to the strictest reading of the Jewish law. So then what do we see happening? Excuse me. <coughs> and I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee, so now picking up in verse 6. It now is because of my hope in what God has promised my ancestors that I am on trial today. Who is the Customs and controversy, therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Right? Also, they all know that I was ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. So he was told that he was living as a Pharisee. So that's verse 4. And now it's because of uh, verse 4 and 5. Now it's because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. Hmm. So let's keep going. So that's in uh, verse uh, 6. So verse 7 says this. This is the promise our trail triumphs are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that Jesus, these Jews 
accusing me? Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth that it is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priests I put many of the Lord's people in prison and when <coughs> excuse me and when they were put to death I cast my vote against them many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and I tried to force them to blaspheme I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities right so what's going on here right so Paul is in essence so this speech of Paul the essence of this speech Paul gave is a defense of his quote-unquote theological crimes rather than his quote-unquote civil crimes because Paul doesn't see that he's committing any civil crimes all he sees that he's being persecuted and put on trial for is for quote-unquote theological crimes right so that's why he started off by saying in verse 4 the Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem so Paul is essentially telling us at the very beginning that his former life was very well known to his audience right so he goes on to say that same thing in verse 5. It says, They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strict sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. Right? So, we see, so Paul has come right out and said, Hey, I was a Pharisee, and I was on the fast track to political and religious in other words, if I had stayed on the track that y'all want me to stay on, I'd have gone higher and higher and higher up this ladder, right? And so he goes on to say, right, that the intent, so he goes on to say this, right, and it is, verse 6, and it is, and now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. Paul is essentially telling us, hey, look, you not only hate me, because I abandoned you. Right? So Paul's got, Paul is consistently affirming that their problem was his belief in the resurrection of the so he tells us that in verses 6 to that's what he's telling us here, right? He says, and now it's because of the hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. Can you grip it? It is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why well, should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? 
essentially he's connecting his belief in the resurrection of the dead to Christ's resurrection which led directly to his conversion by a resurrected Jesus, right? So that's what we're seeing in verse 9 where he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do that all oh, that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth and that is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priests and put many of the Lord's people in prison and when they were put to death I cast my vote against them many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and I tried to force them to blaspheme I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities, right? So he said, so we're going to see when we get into the next section, right? The Paul goes on to say, I was led to conversion by a resurrected Christ. It's a direct answer to his challenge in verse 8. This notion that it was incredible for the living God to raise the dead. If you say God is a living God, it's a living, breathing, moving God. Why is it so incredible for you to believe that a living, breathing, moving God can raise up somebody from the dead? He then goes on to describe his activity in Jerusalem as imprisoning believers under the auspices of the high priest as well as consenting to the death of believers, right? So we already know that he consented to the death of Stephen. But what he's talking about here, what he's referencing here, is probably more than simply the encounter of Stephen. This is hundreds of others, possibly maybe even thousands of others. We don't know. We ain't given a number. But we know that saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? 
I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you as to appoint you as a servant, and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Right. Right, so Paul now moves on. He's now directly addressing the king, right? So this is a, this is a major, huge shift in Paul's speech, right? Because you see, these verses here, 12 through 18, because that's where we stopped, was verse 18. These six or so verses follow closely all of Paul's previous resuscitations of his conversion event. Right? And so we're told here, we're given some more additional information, right? So we're told in verse 14, right, that it is hard for you to kick against the goats. So, what exactly is that phrase? What is Jesus telling Paul here, right? So that phrase, to kick against the goats, goats, is a Greek proverb. And what it pictures is an animal that is kicking against pointed sticks that were used to hurt it. Right? So, in essence, what Jesus is telling him is that what you are doing is only harming yourself. So when Paul turned from his previous way of life of persecuting the believers, what does he do? He turns from a what what is he doing? He's turning from a path of destruction, not just a path of destruction, but a path of self-destruction to a path that brings life, that brings healing. So he turns from a path of destruction and he follows Christ. And so we see this very end section, right? It says, um, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them, and now in verse 18, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that you may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, Jesus has given Paul a very specific commission here. Jesus gave Paul a very specific commission. And what was Paul's commission? Paul's commission was to turn others from darkness to light. He was to turn others from from Satan to God. And he was to do all of this. That these people that Paul would reach to include every single person who has come to faith in Christ Jesus who is not of Jewish descent, right? That we might receive forgiveness and an inheritance. So we're going to talk more about what that 
inheritances when we get over into the book of Galatians. But just understand, we receive forgiveness and we receive an inheritance as a child of God now. That is, if you have put your faith and trust in Him. So now let's pick up over in verse 19. And we're going to take it on to the end of this section. He says this, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First those in Damascus, then those in Jerusalem and in all Judea. Then to the Gentiles I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. So in this last little section, Paul first recounted where he had preached. And he told, he tells us in verse 20, first to those in Damascus. Right? Then he goes on to say then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea. And then to the Gentiles, he doesn't list every single Every single Gentile city, every single Gentile town that he ever went to to preach the gospel, because he doesn't really mean to. That's not the entire point. But what he is telling King Agrippa, who has surely heard now that the church's commission was to go out and to make disciples of the whole world. First in Jerusalem, then into Judea, then into Samaria, and then to the very ends of the earth, right? And the very ends of the earth would have been two places like Rome, and even beyond Rome, on and on to the wilds of Spain, which it's largely believed that Paul actually did go and preach there at some point in time, right? So Paul then goes on to describe, after he described where he preached, he talked about his ministry, right, in Damascus. He talked about his ministry in Jerusalem. He talked about his ministry in all Judea. And he talked about his ministry to the Gentiles. And then he goes on to tell us exactly what he preached. He tells the gripper exactly what he preached. What does it say? He says, I preached they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So he, he very carefully, very carefully chose to place repentance and faith before good works. What do you mean by that, right? It says that they, he preached that they should repent. Repent and turn to God, right? Repent and turn to God. So when we say the word repent, that means you turn your back on your way of living. And, and you 
turn around and you go the opposite direction. So if you were living a life opposed to God, when we say repent, that means you turn around and you go the opposite direction. It means you start pursuing God now. You, you done put aside all your old stuff. You done started living a new life, right? So that's what it means to repent and turn to God. And what, what does it say? What does it say? He says, this will be shown, this will be demonstrated. How it will be demonstrated by your deeds, through your deeds. He doesn't say that you repent and turn to God by doing good works. No, 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 Paul never says that. never says here, and he never says in any of his writings that you are saved by your good works. No, 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 you're saved because you have turned from them and you have accepted God's free gift of grace brought to you by faith. But it's not for anything you've ever done because you can't ever do anything to earn it. And he goes on to say in verse 21, that is why some Jews seize in the temple courts and try to kill me. As you see, to the Jewish people, the way to salvation was to follow not just the, the spirit of the law, but to follow, follow the entire letter of the law. And if you didn't follow the entire letter of the law, you were not saved. That's, that was the way Jewish people thought. It's still the way Judaism works. And it's still the way some people who claim they are Christians think you gotta do it exactly this way or you ain't saved. You gotta do exactly this or you ain't saved. It's grace plus works when it's grace alone that saves you, when it's grace by faith, it's grace through faith that you have been saved, not of works, so that you can't boast. And Paul writes to the Ephesian church, it's what led to the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. It's what changed the way the church is viewed throughout the entire world. It moved people to do them. Right. So, uh, so Paul is essentially saying that it was for the sake of the gospel that his life was in danger from his countrymen. So picking up now in verse 22, which says, but God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul here is affirm he's affirming that the gospel is in accordance with Moses and with the prophets. The gospel 
It's what, 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 what do we mean by that? The gospel, Paul is telling these people, hey, 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 look. Your canon, your scriptures are the five books of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And guess what? Guess what? Guess what? They all told this would happen. Like they all said this would happen. They all said that the Messiah would suffer. And they said that he would be the first to rise up from the dead. He would be the first one to come back from the dead. And that because he was the first, he would bring the message of light. Not just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles. So Paul is saying, but Paul is saying to a Jewish king, your scriptures, your holy scriptures, tell you exactly what was going to happen. They pointed to this. You've chosen to ignore it. At your own peril. But I've not committed any crime against the Jewish law. I've not committed any crime against Roman law. The only crime that I have committed is that I have something that was in the religious leaders of that day's eyes so radically different that it needed to be stopped and so that's where we will pick up tomorrow because we're gonna see both Festus's reaction and we're gonna see Agrippa's reaction to Paul's argument in his defense to this great and speech that Paul just gave before he was sent off to Rome to face Caesar and ultimately to die so what you need to read to be prepared for that is you need to read Job chapters 31 through 33 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Psalm 43, 1 through 5, and Proverbs 22, 8 through 9.